Good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you today for our very last online-only service. Um, next Saturday, as Claire just said, we're going to be moving into phase two of our reopening plan as a church, which is going to see us resuming in-person weekly gatherings on Saturday nights at 5.30 at Heritage Baptist Church on Forest Drive. Um, a few notes about that before we get started today. First, I want to say that I am really truly excited about the chance to have Saturday evening services. And that's not only because it means that I'm not going to personally have to get up at six uh, in the morning to drive trailers over to the elementary school anymore, which is great. Um, but it's actually, the reason I'm actually excited is because I can't wait to see what doors this day and time opens up for us as a church. Uh, we're going to be one of the only churches in our area to have services at that time that I know of, and I wonder which of our neighbors that this t day and time is going to resonate with when we ask them um, to join us for church. Um, I think that this, this whole situation is going to lighten the burdens of our volunteer teams, and I'm also really eager to see what happens after church on Saturday nights. Um, on that first week, we're going to have an ice cream social right after service, but I'm hoping that uh, this service time will also open up a lot of possibilities for folks at Revolution to grab dinner together afterwards, or uh, maybe one day to go see a movie together, or just to spend more time hanging out. Um, it's my belief that investing in our community as a church is going to be unbelievably important for us this summer, and... And honestly, I just can't wait to see all of you consistently again. Um, the other thing, thing number two that I'm excited about, is our relationship with Heritage Baptist Church. Um, the pastor at Heritage, uh, Scott Shelton, and I have been working over the last year to build a true partnership with other pastors and churches inside the city of Annapolis. And the hope is that this network we've been building um, is going to break down a lot of barriers and give us a chance as a church and as a group of churches to model something new and different for the people of our city. Uh, we want to throw everything we have into a vision of the singular kind of big C church in our city as a network of real support and partnership between individual congregations instead of something that fosters an atmosphere of competition. Um, how could it change the way people see Christians in Annapolis if we genuinely love one another and support one another with our resources, even if we don't attend the same worship services with each other? And so to that end, although we are renters at Heritage, um, we also want to be partners with them too, and they want us to be partners with them. We want to share some of our programs together. We want to work together on community outreach and on service events. And we want to support each other as best we can uh, in the time ahead. If you've been following our online services over the last year, you've met Heritage's worship leader, Willie Hadnot, who's played piano and he's sang with us a few times. And hopefully we're going to see him again on some Saturday services from time to time. And and in response, our worship team members and I, as a, as a speaker, we have also made ourselves available to share with Heritage's Sunday services when needed, too. And so I'm just really excited about being genuine partners with another church in our community and with other churches beyond 
um, this little network in our community. Um, I think that together we can truly embody something different and something built on love for Annapolis. And honestly, I just really hope that you will make plans to join us for all of this. And honestly, all of that, uh, all of that conversation goes a long way towards setting us up for what we're going to be talking about today. This morning, we're getting into the fourth week of our series called Nomads, which is on the letter of 1 Peter. And so far, we have looked at how Peter is trying to offer comfort and encouragement to the largely Gentile Christians that he's addressing in the letter. And we've seen him sympathize with the ways that they have been sort of outcast from their communities. And he encourages them by saying that even though they might feel in this season like they are exiles, that in fact they are nomads, which is to say people who appear to be on the margins of the city, but who have the chance, even at that margin, to build this vibrant and influential community of their own. And at the center of that community is their mutual commitment not just to Jesus, but to living out the radical ways of love that Jesus has taught them. Peter says that they are free, that they are free, not just from their sin, but they are free from the need to fight for a place in their cultural pecking order anymore. They are free to love, and by pouring themselves into this mission of love, they have this chance to be a part of God's plan for reaching the whole world. And today, we're, we're going to continue looking at this letter, and specifically we're going to be looking at the end of the second chapter and the majority of the third chapter. And it's a lot of verses that we're covering today, and even more than just being a lot of verses, they are verses that are famously among the most misused and most abused verses in all of Scripture. In a nutshell, the passages we are looking at today are, are known as the submission verses. In them, Peter tells his readers to submit to their masters if they're slaves. He tells them to submit to their husbands if they are women and wives. And he tells them to submit to the power of Rome no matter who they are. And for 2,000 years now, Christians have used these verses from 1 Peter to justify endless abuses, not just to each other, but endless abuses of, of the very spirit of what Peter and the leaders of the early church are trying to command Christians to do. So for that, for all of those abuses, we as Christians continue to owe one another an apology, and we would certainly continue to owe people beyond the church an apology as well. And for my part in all of that, I want to say that I am sorry for the lies that Christians tell about the so-called nobility of just blind submission. And more than just apologizing for the ways we misuse all of this, I want to do what I can today to try and reevaluate what Peter is actually asking us to do so that we're not just taking verses that get abused and not looking at them, but rather trying to understand what is actually true here so that we can learn from it and be challenged by it. And to do all of that, I want to start today by revisiting an old and honestly a frequent friend in sermons here at Revolution, and that would be 19th century American transcendentalist author Henry David Thoreau. This has got to be at least 
I don't know, the fourth or fifth time that I brought up Henry David Thoreau. So my apologies, but you guys know me. This is, this is how I roll. Um, but in any case, I'll, I'll keep it a little brief today. In 1849, so that's the year we're looking at here, Thoreau was famously arrested for refusing to pay his taxes. And he spent all of one night in the local jail in Concord, Massachusetts. And then he wrote an essay about that experience. And even though his actual imprisonment was hardly anything uh, of consequence, that essay he wrote, which is titled alternately Resistance to Civil Government, or you may have read it in school as Civil Disobedience, that essay has to be among the most influential writings that any American has ever produced. And in that essay, his main point is that moral people have a moral obligation to resist an immoral state. But, <clears throat> but what I want to briefly talk about from that essay is this passage, which comes right at the beginning. And he writes this of his experience. He says, I did not for a moment feel confined and the walls seemed a great waste of stone and mortar. For they, meaning the prison guards, or, or uh, presumably, for they thought that my chief desire was to stand on the other side of that stone wall. I could not but smile to see how industriously they locked the door on my meditations, which followed them out again without let or hindrance and they were really all that was dangerous. So Thoreau's point here is that his actual power in the community isn't found in the stuff that he, one man, could do or was doing. His actual power is in the stuff that he says and what happens when people hear it. He was taking a, a principled stand on taxes and by locking him up, the authorities had only amplified the thing that was actually dangerous to them about him. They punished his body, but his mind was actually their real problem. And I bring this up because it resonates, I think, with what Peter is trying to tell the nomadic Christians that he's writing to in our verses from today. In chapter 2, he says this to them. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves." Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, living under the dark shadow of the legacy of American slavery, as we do, certainly affects the ways that we read what Peter is saying here. However, what is at root in what he is saying is not the way it's often presented, some command to just go along with whatever terrible things the authorities that you live under are into doing. Rather, very clearly what he says here is that we are to submit for the Lord's sake so that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. 
And this last part is super important, and it requires us to remember who it is that Peter is talking to. We've, we've talked about this every week in this series, but his readers are first century Christians in a pluralistic Roman culture. They are a group of people who are demonized by the surrounding culture as weird cultists and cannibals and incestuous weirdos. We'll get to this another time, I'm sure, but the short version is this, that if if communion has ever seemed weird to you, let me tell you, communion seemed a lot weirder to your regular run-of-the-mill first century Romans. All the things about eating Jesus' blood or eating his body and drinking his blood were, were weird, for sure, at the time. And so Peter's point is that The authorities are after you as Christians because they see you as weird. They see you as revolutionaries. They see you as this threat to Roman power. If, then, you submit willingly to persecution, he's saying you can expose the ignorant talk about you is just that. You can expose it as ignorant of you. In place of these wild, crazy, cannibalistic rebels that everyone's expecting to see when the government locks up a group of Christians, the people who actually were to see your arrest, when when they witness your persecution, they, they can see something totally different. They can see somebody being kind, showing love, being gentle and obedient, even to the people who are oppressing them. The plan that Peter's going for then, and this is the key thing about the way these verses have been abused, the plan that Peter is proposing isn't a plan of maintaining the status quo and all of its abuses, which is how these verses get so horrifically mishandled so often. The plan Peter is proposing is one of counter-cultural kindness. Counter-cultural kindness kindness. And this, I think, is how Henry David Thoreau relates. Because the state only knows what to do to your body. They can throw you in jail, they can beat you up, they can have you executed. But the truly revolutionary thing about Jesus in particular is that Jesus loves his enemies and he commands us to do the same. Jesus was God, and despite being God, he allowed himself to be executed by the Roman state for the express purpose that by being executed, no one could ever say again that loving your enemies is too idealistic or too romantic or too impractical to work. Jesus dies and then he rises from the dead in order to prove once and for all that love wins. That love wins. And that, that gospel is the point of the submission that Peter is calling for. How do we prove to people who don't yet believe that love alone wins? So, 
if that's the, the countercultural mission that Peter is trying to give these persecuted Christians, what are the particular cases then that Peter is going to work through in chapters 2 and 3? Well, in, in verses 18 through 23 of chapter 2, he writes this. He writes, Servants, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Just to say, he entrusted his sort of verdict, not to not to the authorities of the Roman Empire. He subjected himself to the authority and the judgment of God. After this, Peter goes on to write in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. That second part is crucial here because it clarifies for us that Peter is writing to women who have become Christians and then in the, the community of the early church they are finding empowerment and equality as co-children of God alongside Christian men in a way that is unique in the culture they live in. But so in the church community they've become a part of, they're finding empowerment, and yet at home they're still married to men who have not yet become Christians. And so saying to these women, submit to your own husbands, Peter is aware that this is an enormous ask for people who are tasting equality and a role as, as equals regardless of who you are in the church when they're going home and experiencing something very different. He's aware that this is a huge ask. But Peter compares this, this ask of submitting to your husband at home, to a willing embrace of imprisonment. And he does that because he knows it is a radical and unfair thing to ask. However, he sees in this an opportunity for people to imitate as best they can the wild, wild love of Jesus. And then lastly, he writes to the counterparts to those women, which is to say Christian men in the church community whose wives are not believers. And he says to them in verse 7, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. In essence, Peter is saying to all of his readers, no matter what their sort of particular circumstance or their life situation or whatever, what Peter is saying to them is go out of your way to be generous towards the people that you are tied to in your life. 
Go out of your way to be generous towards the people that you are tied to in your life. Think of your life, in other words, as a mission field. Who in the mission field of your life can you show surprising kindness to? Who would be amazed to receive that kindness from you? And how will showing that kindness reflect on your faith, which, in the context of the audience Peter's writing to, which is this source of rumors and gossip throughout your community? Everybody has an opinion and a, has heard an idea or a whisper about what Christians are. But if you go into the mission field of your life and show kindness, the same kind of kindness you experience in your church community, you show it out of that community to the people that you are tied to, then you give testimony to those people that resist the ignorant talk that they already have in their minds and in their hearts about what Christians are. Now, this all sounds good, right? Maybe. But it also probably strikes you as something that is incredibly hard and maybe even unfair to do, right? Peter, it's worth pointing out here, totally agrees. It is hard and unfair. So he closes this section of his letter by writing this to the Christians regarding not their relationships with the people outside of the church bubble, but their relationships with the people inside the bubble. And he says this in verses 8, 9, and 13 of chapter 3. He says, Finally, all of you in the bubble, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? He's saying be patient with each other in this. Be patient. Freedom is a paradox in the church. We are free to submit to authority for the Lord's sake, that in our peaceable behavior, other people will taste God's love and have a chance at receiving the same freedom that we have. The, the good news, the reassurance, which we have talked about over and over over the last few weeks, is that we are relieved of the bitterness that goes along with suffering oppression. That's why Peter foregrounds his letter with all of this talk about this, that we're relieved of any, of any bitterness because of what we are going through, because he's already talked about this, because our homes, our inheritance, our salvation, all of these things are eternally secured for us. And that means that there is nothing ultimately, which can really be taken away from us. This, I think, is where Peter most overlaps with that point from Thoreau, right? You can lock up my body 
all you want to. Because when you lock up my body, it only makes you look foolish for thinking that my body is the thing that threatens you. But Peter's argument is that our eternal freedom frees us up to submit in these culturally surprising ways. And by virtue of how surprising they are, to open doors for the gospel. So, that's the plan. That's what I think Peter is getting at in these submission verses. But it's worth asking before we close, right? Does any of this work? It seems like the essential question, at least to me, before I sign up to apply a 2,000-year-old letter to my daily life, it would be really good to know if that 2,000-year-old letter had any effect when it was written. And wildly, the answer to that is that it absolutely does appear to work. And we know that it appears to work because of this curious document that I happened to stumble across this week. It's this letter that's written by an anonymous author who's sometimes referred to as, oh man, I'm never going to get the Greek right, um, Mathetes, maybe. Anyways, he's an anonymous author, but he's writing this letter to this man named Diognetus. And Diognetus, who is the personal tutor of a future emperor of Rome named Marcus Aurelius, his name might ring a bell for you. But anyways, this anonymous author in the second century is writing this letter to the tutor of the future emperor, and in it, he is trying to explain to that tutor why these Christian sects and communities that are all throughout the empire at this point are persisting in spite of all of the widespread persecution they've been receiving from all sides. And so he writes to this other, this other guy, and he says this about Christians. He writes, For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But, inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with each other, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned they are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. 
They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum all up in one word, what the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. Isn't this an amazing document? What a great thing to say, right? What the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. What Peter is talking about worked. The power of our freedom is that it enables us to live differently. Because we believe in a God of justice, we can both advocate fiercely for justice for others and at the same time willingly suffer injustice for ourselves. Because we believe the wealth of this life is temporary, we can give with wild generosity and we can step away from the rat race of a society that is always pressuring us to give up more so that we can gain more. Because we believe that death is not the end of our lives, but a door that we pass through towards eternity, we can suffer abuse with the confidence that there is nothing the world can take from us that God doesn't offer to us in abundance. And when we take all of these private and personal reassurances that our faith gives us and then turn them outwards, when we allow those reassurances to change how we live and how we love and how we give and how we cheer and who we see in the world and how we act towards people in the world, we become a real and powerful testimony to who Jesus is. Which is to say that we have the chance to live differently because we are nomads. Because the anchor to our identity isn't the town we live in or the country we belong to or the rights we believe that we've been afforded. The anchor of our identity is that we are the beloved children of God. What incredible things can God do with people who believe that? To make all of this practical for us today, there are just three quick things that I want you to think about this week. And the first is this. Where is your security coming from? Because for any of this stuff to work, our bedrock, our anchor, must be in who God says we are. So where are you at 
in your own story? Do you trust that God loves you as much as He says that He does? And if you're not sure what you think about that, how can you take one step this week towards a decision about it? If I can help in any way, please give me a call. I'd love to talk with you. But whether you talk to me or somebody else, take a step towards thinking about and making a decision about that question. Where is your security coming from? The second is this. Where has God placed you? What relationships and realities are you in the middle of? And how can you start to take steps towards radically loving the people who are there with you? Maybe for you that's as simple as keeping the coffee pot in the office full. Maybe it's saying no to gossiping or backbiting your boss or your colleagues. Or maybe it's something bigger, like offering somebody a place to stay or a car to drive. What matters, though, is not specifically what you feel led and convicted to do. What matters is that you are already embedded in a mission field right now in your life. You just have to start taking steps to live boldly inside that mission field. And so where are you and what steps can you take this week in that mission field? And then the third and final question is this, what do you see? What do you see? That letter I read a moment ago to Diognetus is this amazing encouragement. It's not scripture, but this historical document we have that's this amazing amazing bit of encouragement that we wouldn't have at all if somebody hadn't bothered to write it down, right? And I think similarly, our stories and the stories that we witness in the world are so powerful. And if we share them, if we share the stories that we have, the stories that we see, it can make a huge difference. There's no way somebody sat down 1,900 years ago and wrote a letter about how wild Christian culture was and then imagined that 1,900 years later people would be reading it and thinking like, man, that really does help me, really does persuade me to listen to, to Peter. Like, that's not possible, but, but that's what's happened. And it happens because people step out and share their stories. And so as we begin meeting in person again in the next month, we have to go back to being a storytelling church. We have to go back to being a storytelling church. And that means we want everybody who's here to have a chance and a place to share. So what do you see? That's the third question. And then the follow on that is, is how can you start to share that? Until then, until we start sharing those stories and still we, until we start meeting together in person, this is it, right? This is the last online-only service. I'm signing off from this weird corner of my bedroom where this plant and I have been talking to you for 15 months now. Um, thank you for staying here. Thank you for watching and listening and trying to participate in our church community, even when doing that has been weird and hard. 
We're going to make it through this thing. I can't wait to see what God does with this church in the year ahead. I'm feeling a little nostalgic and sad about my chair. I'm wondering how hard it would be to bring this. Can I preach on a Sunday from this chair? Maybe the plant can come. I don't know. But anyways, thank you. And I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to continue in worship this week. God, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for giving us a real example to follow. Thank you for this radical call to live in freedom and to, to be able to use that freedom to, to love other people in a way that gives them a taste of who you are and welcomes them in to the community that we're a part of. God, I pray that you will open all of our eyes to, to the mission field of our life. You will show us the relationships and the needs that are already all around us in the place that we've been embedded, and that you will give us the eyes to see them and the, the compassion in our hearts to feel, uh, to feel uneasy until we've done something to love and to help. God, use this church community in unbelievable ways to make yourself known here in our city. We love you and are so grateful for what you have done in our church and what you will keep doing in the months ahead. Thank you so much for preserving revolution over these last 15 months. Thank you for all the moments of encouragement and hope that we've had in the midst of this hardship. We are so grateful to you. We love you, God. Thank you for loving us. In your son's name, amen.